We're in a very difficult uh, passage, uh, Mark chapter 10. If you have uh, your Bible there, uh, we, I, I'm not sure I want to read this whole passage again, but I didn't finish it last week because uh, we ran out of time. But Mark 10, uh, really 1 through 12, um, Jesus deals with the complicated issue of divorce. And uh, he does so because, as we read in verse 2, the Pharisees are trying to test him, trip him up, by asking him a very well-thought-through question, but in one level, a very ridiculous question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Then the Lord responds masterfully. What about Moses? What's he say? Because they would have known what Moses says in Deuteronomy 24, which is what the Lord is referring to there. So they respond to that. What is fascinating, and I went over this last week, I'm just quickly summarizing. Jesus does not go to Deuteronomy 24. Jesus goes to the creation ordinance. And I want to encourage you, men, whenever you study passages like marriage, the role of women in the church, uh, marriage responsibilities between husband and wife, sexual issues, human sexuality issues, whether Jesus or the Apostle Paul, because they're the two that always address these issues, they always take you back to creation. They don't deal with the Levitical Code. Don't, they don't deal with issues in the Greco-Roman world. They take you back to creation. What was God's design? And that is imperative because the controversies, and I guess that's the right word I want to use, the controversies that relate to all those issues are issues that need to be dealt with and need to be focused on, but we need to take people back to what was God's ideal? What was his design? What's his standard? And that's what Jesus does here. And with that being the case, he quotes from Deuter- uh, excuse me. He quotes from Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore, I'm in mean, verse 7. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, no longer two, but one. And he proceeds that with a quote from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God made them male and female. And as I said last time, without getting into any of the conversation about it, it's in our culture. Jesus isn't dealing with transgenderism. Jesus is not dealing with same-sex marriage. But both of those issues are related to this. Because you go back to the creation ordinance of God, male and female, he created them. And you go back to the creation ordinance of God, God creates the first institution of human civilization, marriage. And then he says God's ideal is that two, male, female, different in every chromosome of their body, are to come together into a one flesh union. And that one flesh union that Jesus quoted from Genesis 2.24, that one flesh union is not only sexual intercourse, although that is obviously a part of it, it is the merging of two individuals into one. Keep their idiosyncrasies, keep their identity, they're still male and female, but now they're one, serving the Lord in their integrity. And so then, following uh, what we didn't quite get to last time, in verse 10, 11, and 12, Mark tells us Jesus and disciples go into the house. Uh, we, we know that he's on his way down to Jerusalem, from Galilee down to Jerusalem. We don't know where he is. But wherever they are, they go into the house, and the disciples ask him about this issue. And so in verse 11, Jesus says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. 
which as I mentioned, I believe I mentioned this last week, this is quite remarkable. Because however you're going to look at this passage, Jesus is saying both the man and the woman can divorce. And so that too is just really almost countercultural in the first century. But you read a verse like this, or it's actually two verses, but you read two verses like this, you come away, well, then there are no exceptions. Okay, Joel's the only one looking at me, so the rest of you, I don't know why, nobody's looking at me. There are no exceptions. Not quite. <laughs> <clears throat> I haven't used the board in this class for one year and <laughs> nine and a half months. It missed you. It's like old times. What's that verse? Now, if you go, we're not going to take the time to do to read these two passages. You can look at them perhaps on your own time. But in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, the same exchange is recorded between Jesus and the Pharisees and so on. And in verse 9, Jesus says just what he said in verses 10 11 of, uh, of this passage. But then he adds, except for, and most translations translate this immorality, but the Greek word is porneia. Now, you, if you recognize that, you're only going to recognize it because the word pornography comes from that. Porneia, graphe, is language of immorality or pictures of immorality in the Greek language. And so the issue here is really created no small controversy because the Greek word for porneia that is translated by most translations immorality is a very broad term. He doesn't, he's not saying, he could say except for adultery, but that's not what he, that's not the word Jesus uses. There is a different, very specific, wikia is the Greek word for adultery, but that's not the word Jesus uses. He uses a very broad term. And so, again, that has created no small controversy, believe me, but certainly that could include a whole spectrum of immoral issues. And the language of the Greek here is, this is not a one-time break of the marriage covenant. This is an ongoing habitual break of the marriage covenant by either partner. And so this, and, and Jesus, that, I should have put the quotation marks here, except for immorality. That's, that's the text, except. For immorality. So Jesus is saying, I'm giving you God's standard except for immorality. And uh, for the third time I'll say it, but this has caused no small discussion in the 2,000 years of interpretation of this. But the Lord is saying there is an exception here. And then if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which the entire chapter um, uh, 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering a question that the Corinthians had given to him. 
And in this passage, particularly in verse 15, he has been addressing the issue of marriage. He's been addressing the issue of sexuality in marriage. Jesus is, in effect, saying, if we put it in one word, he doesn't use the word desertion, but that's what he's talking about because a long verse on it. There is another exception. If the unbelieving spouse or the spouse deserts, deserts the other spouse, male, female, it's not specific. So they leave. They break the covenant by leaving. They are making that decision. They're leaving. And so in that sense, Paul is, is arguing that a, a, a divorce is an exception that is acceptable to God. Now, all of this reflects the degradation and sorrow of sin. But at the same time, because it's a fallen, broken world, there these two exceptions play into a comp- I shouldn't say play into fit into a comprehensive understanding of this complicated issue of divorce and remarriage. And it's not an easy issue. I've dealt with it many times in, in, in my various roles in, in, in ministry and so on. And there's, no, there's probably no greater heartache than a divorce. It's like a death in a family. But how do you help people process it? How do you help people understand? And the guilt and shame that they feel from it and all the things that are a part of it. But the Lord does seem to be saying here in these two passages, there are two situations where divorce in the eyes of God is hardly his perfect will, but he will graciously accept it. And then he deals with both individuals in whatever way he wants to deal with them. So, I mean, for now, as far as Gump said 22 years ago, that's all I have to say about this. (laughs) unless you want me to say more about it. Because the context is the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up. The word that's used in verse 2 is to test him. And the Lord responds masterfully in control of this discussion and takes them back to God's ideal. Jim, would you hit those two words again that kind of reflect what you just said? The two words. Two, Two words. Immorality. Is that what you're talking about? Immorality, and I tried to stress that, it's translating a very, very broad term. Porneia in the Greek language is very broad. It is used, the homosexuality, it's used, the bestiality, it's a very broad term. But the context of the verb is it's a continuous act, isn't just one time, it's a continuous act. The second is desertion. And and it's it, Paul makes that clear in verse 15, I think, yeah, verse 15, that it's where a spouse decides to desert, a, a spouse decides. You're the believer, you're not choosing, but that's what they're choosing to do. And so in that kind of situation, they've broken the covenant, they've broken the bond, and, and then a divorce in that kind of a situation is understandable. Okay? So I just, in terms of the the broad biblical understanding of this very difficult issue, that's why I wanted to add these two things. So everybody's with me, okay? And online here, everybody's with me? Okay. Yeah, we're with you. All right, good. Verse 13, now we shift to another topic. And remember remember what Mark is doing. Mark gives you the docudrama approach. It's bang, 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 these series of very short 
uh, narrative. I want to re re refresh your memory. We learned that from verse 1 of chapter 10. Jesus is on the move. He's now moving from Galilee, and if you, you want to visual this, just look on page 7 of your notes at map. And I want to remind you, I just want to remind you something. It's going to help us to understand what he's doing. In the ancient world, the world of Jesus and so on, you know, it, north is Galilee, center is Samaria, then Judea. There were two roads that you could take. The Rome, Roman Empire called it the Via Mars. It was the road along the sea, an international highway. The other was called the King's Highway. This was started down here in Arabia and went up along the Jordan River. Okay, it was on the east side of the Jordan River. It's kind of mountainous there. It's really not flat at all, whereas this is flat, but it's very difficult. But most Jews, as they would go from Galilee down to Judea, they would go the King's Highway. From what we are seeing here, as you'll see in just a couple of, of paragraphs, the Lord is taking this route. He is taking the King's Highway route. He's going east of the Jordan River. There's a road there. You see remnants of it, actually. And so they generally avoided Samaria. Okay? So if you're interested in geography, I thought I'd mention that. If you're not, just forget everything I just said. So he's on the move. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. Now, who is the they? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> but it's the crowds. It isn't the disciples. Well, you'll see that in just a minute. So it's the crowds. The people were following him. We know, uh, be, and we'll see this when we get to Passion Week in the Gospel of Mark. A number of people from Galilee are following Jesus. And they're, they're heading down to, to Jerusalem, to Judea, for the same reason Jesus to observe the Passover. And so it may be these folks, or it may be various crowds in the towns that he's going through. So we don't know who the they are, but it's not the disciples. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. The Greek word for children there is paideia, which means from children from babies to preteens, which, you know, about 10, 11 years old. So it's this age group. It's not teenagers or the way we would talk at that. You know, school-age kids, middle-age kids, high school kids. They didn't do that in the ancient world. <laughs> there were two words, and the word that he's using here is the small children, from infants, babies, to about 10 or 11. They might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. <laughs> Who's preventing little children from coming to Jesus? Demons? No. Satan? No. The disciples. This is a great message to preach at a child evangelism fellowship banquet. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Here are the crowd bringing babies and little kids to Jesus, and the disciples are trying to stop them from doing it. And the word rebuke is really important because, in the, and this, this is really true almost until you get to the 20th century. Children were regarded as unimportant. The best thing for children, the group says, is to be quiet. That is not how we look at it today. My, my grand, grandkids were just with us for a couple of weeks. And the one thing that did not obtain in two weeks ever is that the little children be quiet. They were not quiet. 
They're two boys, seven and three, and you know what boys seven and three are like. So I mean, but it was, it's they're unimportant. They don't matter. Jesus, this is a waste of your time. Again, Child Evangelism Fellowship would be a dead ministry if that were true, but it's not true. Because you know, statistics are very clear on this. Uh, the, the majority of believers, whatever their age, they come to faith in Jesus Christ during these years. So it's really it's crucial. So Jesus is going to give the right perspective on this. In the ancient world, children were best not heard or not seen. You're wasting your time, Jesus. Look, verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Again, that, that Greek word, that's a fine, tran I read from the SV translation, that's a fine translation, but it's a very intense emotional word. This is a strong emotional reaction of Jesus. It in, you can infer from this an anger of Jesus. I mean, this really upsets Jesus. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Again, same word that we, we see in verse 13, the paideas. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So what Jesus, what Jesus is doing is he's broadening the application of this. Don't hinder the kids from coming to me because they represent those who will populate the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that only children, but he's saying that kingdom, citizenship in the kingdom of God starts with the humble faith of a child. You come to Jesus in humility, like a child. Jesus will say in another passage, the faith I am anticipating is a childlike faith. And so Jesus is, again, as he does so often, he sees this as a teachable moment. And so he takes this extraordinary situation where his disciples are rebuking him for talking to little kids, and Jesus, really emotionally upset by this, says, don't, don't hinder them. The people who populate the kingdom will be like children. Truly I say to you, who has not received the kingdom of God like, it's, it's a simile. It's not a child, but like, that's a simile. Like a child shall not enter it. Okay, now we just talk about to Think about this just a little more deeply. Childlike trust, childlike dependence. I mean, it was, we even saw that with our grandkids, you know, they're, they're boisterous and bombastic and loud, and, but they get into, they get into something they, they're afraid of. What do they immediately run to you and grab your leg? You know what I mean? Because they're afraid. Where do they go? They go to something safe, something they trust. And so they're under the assumption that we know what we're doing. They're under the assumption that we really can, and yet we don't always know. We're not sure, but, you know, for the most part, there's security there, there's safety there. And so Jesus is saying, children, model the kind of faith and trust that's necessary for entrance into the kingdom. And that you're going to see that illustrated by the next paragraph, which we'll get to that starts in verse 17 in just a minute. And so he took them. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying hands on them. And the them are the children. I just, 
I, I, I love that picture in my mind of Jesus coddling children and blessing them, that warm-hearted favor of Jesus toward children. I don't know if any of you have uh, watched the, it, it's a very creative and imaginative presentation of Jesus. It's called The Chosen. And uh, there have been two seasons done, basically. But in the first season, I don't remember which episode it was, but there's one, it's just called Jesus and the Little Children. And I mean, it's, again, it's very creative. The, the editor, uh, or the guy, Darius, uh, Dallas uh, Jenkins is the guy who, it, he's actually son of Jerry Jenkins, who's a really famous writer that you may have heard of. He's written a lot of good books. But anyway, Dallas Jenkins has this, he has this project in his mind to do seven seasons of the life of Jesus. It's very creative, it's very imaginative, but in that episode, the whole episode is just Jesus with children. And it is really stirring. I mean, I, have you seen it, Joel? I mean, it's really stirring. I mean, you're just, it's my wife, my wife's favorite episode. She's watched it probably six or seven times. I've seen it once, but it's just really, it's just really creative, but it's, you see which, this warm-hearted favor Jesus has toward children. And that, in the ancient world, that was radical. In our world, it's not, particularly, and I'm glad it isn't. But it's, it's that kind of, you see something here, you see a side of Jesus that is to be modeled, that is to be embraced. You don't rebuke children coming. You encourage children coming. And for a lot of very practical reasons, okay? A lot of the people that give their testimony <clears throat> their earlier years and how they received Christ in their early years when their heart was soft and, and made that decision. Right. And I think that is reflected here because that can happen to our children. Absolutely. To others' children. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's just, uh, it's why um, both in our churches and in our own stewardship of our resources and so on, we should be thinking in some way about ministries that just focus on children. And then, of course, Sunday school and, and you know, Awana and all the different things that are out there to reach kids uh, for the Lord. That's just really, really important. And our next paragraph verse 17 starts with verse 17 is intentional on mark's uh putting together his gospel as well as what really is to be a clear contrast you have a little children being brought to jesus now you have the rich year rich young man a study in contrast this rich young man does not exhibit childlike trust and faith. And as he was setting out on his journey, now remember, Jesus is on the move. He's moving from Galilee down to Jerusalem, to Judea. And he's taking the king's highway, which I pointed out on that map. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. If you're into things like this, you should circle or underline the word do. 
because this man's focus is not on faith. This man's focus is in action. What do I do? What's the implication? What do I do to merit eternal life? What do I do to earn eternal life? What do I do to cause God to look with favor upon me to let me in? Now, I embellished that a little bit, but that's all implied in that word do. The focus is not on faith. The focus is on merit. The Lord's answer is, to me, astonishing. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, you have to look at that from two vantage points. First of all, the human vantage point. Goodness is defined by God. God is good. So however you are going to talk about, think about, define, put boundaries around goodness, you start with an investigation of God being good. God sets the standard for goodness. If you look from the divine standpoint, when Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What's the conclusion? He is God alone. He has the right to talk about this standard of goodness. So I'm just, this is a clever, don't use the word clever, shrewd, maybe it's a better word. This is a shrewd answer to this man's initial question. Good teacher. He's defining Jesus as a rabbi, but he's adding the adjective good. Good teacher, that's unusual. The normal address of anybody was rabbi. I mean, how many times do you see in the New Testament somebody's calling Jesus rabbi? Rabbi, that's a So here the, the guy is saying, good teacher, good rabbi. And Jesus said, wait a minute, time out. Let's talk about this standard, good. God sets the standard for goodness. So why are you calling me good? You think about that from two angles. And both apply. You know the commandments. Now, this is Jesus continuing. So he's established that, that the standard for goodness is God, and by addressing him as good, are you saying I, meaning Jesus, I am God, and I deserve that adjective good? Or do you need to think through why you're using that adjective? Because good is a standard that only is established by God. It's almost like he's saying, which one are you talking about here? Oh. But he stops. Okay. Oh, you got it? I was really having a tough time with why can't he call him good? Okay. He's trying to establish why are you using that word? Exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Oh, exactly. So now Jesus, okay, so he, he it's like a mini bunny trail at the beginning. But then he gets to, okay, all right, I'll get to your I'll get to your 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 point. You know the commandments. This isn't a question. It's a declarative statement. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, Jesus just reviewed all the major commandments of the Decalogue, the major commandments of the law, the major commandments of the Ten Commandments. 
Not all of them, but almost all of them that deal with the lower six. The first four deal with God, the lower six deal with your relationships with individuals. The sanctity of the sanctity of life, don't murder. The sanctity of sexual intimacy in marriage, do not commit adultery. The sanctity of private property, do not steal. The sanctity of truth, do not bear false witness or fraud, defraud. The sanctity of commitments to authority and family, honor your mother and father. So Jesus has reviewed almost all of the lower six commandments. And he said to him, the he is the man, said to him, Jesus, Rabbi, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, probably what he means by that, all these I've kept from my bar mitzvah. Because that was the defining moment when a paideia, a child, moved into, quote, unquote, adulthood. So from when I crossed that barrier, I have kept all of these. Which is really remarkable. It's almost astonishing. If you were to ask these questions, what would you say? Well, I got to talk about this. I got to explain each one. But he audaciously says, since my bar mitzvah, I've kept them all. And I love verse 21. Remember, Mark's primary source for his gospel is the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter, as he's talking with Mark and they're reviewing this event, the Apostle Peter must have said, Mark, you should have been there. You should have seen Jesus' face. You should have seen Jesus' eyes. You should have heard the tone of his voice. Because Mark writes, verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I have a sneaking suspicion that some of you, and that would definitely be true of me, I would have looked at him and said, oh, come off it. Come on. Do you really expect me to believe that? That since you're Bart Mitzvah, you have kept every one of these faithfully? That's not what Jesus does. Looking at him, the, the language of the Greek there is he's gazing upon him. This isn't a tangential quick look. This is this is really staring at him, gazing at him, and loved him. There's tenderness, there's compassion, there's understanding. And said, you lack one thing. Sell Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So it's a twofold command. It's a twofold stipulation. Okay, I will give you the benefit of the doubt. And looking at him, he loves him. You know, there's one more thing that you must do. You're a very wealthy man. 
you have depended on your wealth all of your adult life. I want you to sell it. I want you to give it to the poor. And you're going to have treasure. You're sending it then ahead. You are sending that blessing of your wealth now in temporal, spatial time on to heaven in eternity. And so that's a good thing. And then I want you to follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. What did Jesus just demonstrate? His violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This man put his wealth ahead of God. Because Jesus said, if you're really interested in doing something, you kept all these faithfully. Okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. All right? The most important thing in your life, I'd like you to set that aside and follow me. You said I'm good. Set all that aside and follow me. Are you obeying commandment number one? What's the text say? He was disheartened. Everything he trusted, where all his confidence was, where all his security was, where all his safety was, material, temporal, finite, tactile things, they, in his life, stood ahead of, before, had priority over God. So you have not kept all the commandments. We have no idea what happened, but there is a clear, clear contrast between the little children of the previous chapter uh, previous paragraph, because little children give us a metaphor of what faith to enter the kingdom is like. It's childlike, humble, trusting faith. This man, moral man, we assume, a man of integrity, we assume, from what we briefly see about him, childlike faith, humble trust, no. The source of his safety and security and position and identity, they had priority over God. Not childlike faith. And again, you know, what some, what some people do with this, unfortunately, is they say, see, this is what a disciple of Jesus should just sell everything. That's not the point Christ is making. Some people choose to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. If you choose to do that, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's the that they're missing the whole point. Jesus is stressing, I define what goodness is because I'm God. So we're going to walk through the commandments. Which you say you keep. Kept them all since my bar mitzvah. Okay? 
the source of your safety and security, set it aside. Follow me. You said I'm good. He's manifesting that anything you put before God violates the first commandment. You shall know that God's before me. I am to be worshipped, your devotion and allegiance and loyalty to me first. This isn't a condemnation of material wealth. This isn't a condemnation. None of that. None of that applies. It's not the point. The contrast is between the childlike faith and this man who had all the material things you could ever imagine in life, and he, yet he was faithful. He was, a, I'll put it this way, a good faithful Jew, except for the first commandment. This is a teachable moment. So Jesus does what he does so often. He starts to teach some profound eternal truth. Verse 23 and following. Before we get to that, any questions about the rich young man here? Yeah, Jim, I have one. Uh, yes, mentioned a gentleman. Oh, uh, Woody started a question. Get to, Woody, go ahead. Yeah, I just uh, kind of, when he asked uh, uh, what must I do, it's kind of like, how may I earn? Don't you think? He wanted to earn the he wanted to earn what can I do to uh, earn eternal life yes well, that's all I just uh, that's all I had I wanted to confirm that they both kind okay. of had the same meaning well yeah it, 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 that's right it does it has the same sense the same idea and the, the power of this passage is this man is a moral man, a man of integrity, but his focus is still, all my life I've worked hard, I've gained a lot of wealth, I've gotten a lot of positions, so I'm going to extend that now to the eternal things. What must I do to get this? And Jesus' response is just so powerful. Fred, you were asking the next question. Uh, years ago, you made a statement for someone you knew that was interacting with you, and he said, I put my ladder oh, yeah. mm -hmm. against the wrong, wrong wall. wall. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it just stuck, you know, people sometimes get to the end. And yeah. And he realized it yeah. well enough to he could receive Christ. Yeah. Yes, it's a businessman here in town. Uh, it goes back now a number of years, but I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord. But he said, uh, among many other things, but all my life I've been leaning my ladder against the wrong wall. And that, uh, profound. Uh, very profound <coughs> conclusion of this man. He had lost his wife. He lost his two girls through a divorce. Ugly, ugly, ugly divorce. But uh, God's rescued him. All right, moving on to now the Lord's application, if you maybe I get the right word, but it's like a teachable moment here. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples. Now that it's kind of interesting. Jesus looked around. Um, the idea seems to be that he's letting his eyes sweep over a crowd of people. So I mean it's like there's a whole bunch of people that have observed this, looked around, 
and said to his disciples. Now, that could mean, and probably does mean the 12, but it could be a larger circle than just the 12. Because the interaction here is very broad. So it's just something to think about because of the look around. But regardless of that point, the Lord responds how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. This is not a question. This is a declarative sentence, but it's based on an observation. It's based on the Son of God evaluating human beings. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What do you think Jesus means by this? I know it is always certainly misinterpreted at face value. That in fact, the next couple of verses all have that same. I think it's just summarizing choosing material items versus God is challenging for those who have those comforts. Why? You're right. You're the, right. I'm spot on. But the why? The physical items are in, can be an instant gratification. They meet our needs very quickly, very tangibly, and seeing God's work in our lives is not as easy sometimes. Or even necessary. Hmm. I've gained all this by my hard work. Oh, I didn't. I am self-sufficient. Look what I have done. You're telling me I need God? Why? <laughs> There's a man in town. He was a very, very dear friend of mine. His father is an extremely wealthy man, one of the wealthiest men in Omaha. And he has been talking to his dad for years and years and years. And his dad's basic point is, I really don't need God. That's a bottom line summary, but that's in effect what he's saying. Exactly what Christ is saying here. This man has no needs. The man I'm talking about here. This man has no needs. He started with nothing. He's now worth billions. He worked, you know, that old Horatio Alger story in American civilization. I've worked myself up with my bootstraps. I've clawed myself to the top. You, why do I need God? <laughs> and his view is when you die, that's it. Now, there's nothing. There's nothing about eternity. And I, it's just what Jesus is saying here is really, really appropriate for the United States of America. And, I, and I've heard it said another way, Jim. I uh, was sharing the word of God with this other young man, and he was He's like, well, you know what? Life is going good. I just added God to my life and everything's okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a different way to look at it. Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> That's true. Different way to look at it. Um, do, do I, I'm, I'm wondering if I should say any more about this, but even among, even among Christians, they tip their hat to God on Sunday morning, and pretty much the rest of the week, I'll see you Sunday, Lord. Maybe you're not tracking with me. What I just said is so abstract, you have no idea what I mean. Yes, sir. 
I know, I know an awful lot of people like that. They're, quote, religious people, close the quote. But are they really devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not questioning their salvation. I'm just, it's, Jesus is saying something here that has a very broad application. He is talking about interest in the kingdom. But wealth alone, self-sufficiency, security, safety, an independence, not an independence, not a dependence, and a, do I, do I really need God? And for so much of American civilization, now listen to this sentence, <laughs> there was a social cost to not go to church. In 2021, there's the social cost to go to church. Do you understand those two sentences? The expectation was, you're an American, you go to church. Now, you're an American. You're an autonomous individual. Do you really need to go to church? And Because church attendance is just plummeting in the United States, in, depending on how you look at it. But for the most part, and it's really fascinating because uh, well, maybe not these two, and not Rob, but four of us in this room. We're part of the boomers. You guys are on the edge of millennials and all that stuff. And it, this millennial generation, and then the generation that's coming after them, the Gen Zs, and then there's another generation, not quite sure what we're going to call them yet, but the millennials and the Gen Z, they have absolutely no commitment to institutions. They don't have any commitment to institutions, and it's a growing concern. And so a, a person, a family who regular attenders at a church, they go to church once a month. But we're still regular attenders. And for the boomer generation, no, you're not. And so we're defining things. And so today, the social cost of not being involved in church is minimal. There is almost no social cost. And therefore, commitment to, devotion to, loyalty to, the things that really matter to God are not important. And the material comfort of our civilization allows us to do that without any cost. Now, I'm speaking in really broad terms, maybe I've lost you. But Jesus is saying something, and what he will say in the, in the following verses Hey, uh, Tim, really can I interrupt for a minute? What's that? Uh, can I interrupt for a minute? <clears throat> so yes. uh, when Jesus was standing in front of uh, Pontius Pilate, so, you know, he said, well, I'm here to deliver the truth. And Pontius Pilate is like, well, what is truth? What is Could truth? it be that that he knew, okay, Jesus is God, and maybe he didn't want to give up his lifestyle and everything he had. If he would have said, you know, this this is our Savior, and I'm not going to crucify him. Uh, I'm stepping down. I've always thought about that, you know, because he just, you know, it's kind of the same thing that fits in here, uh, I, I guess. I may be wrong. 
Well, in, in a way, it, there really are two very different situations. Okay. Because Pilate is representing the Roman Empire. He has in his hands the authority over life and death for Jesus and so on. But you're onto something there simply with that question that Pilate asks. It's obviously rhetorical, but as he responds to Jesus, what is truth? And that that is a profound question. And in a sense, it does relate to this, because this young man, understanding of truth is too framed by his wealth, framed by his safety and security that his wealth brings in. All right, it, one more thing here. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Why? Now listen, in the first century, indeed in much of the ancient world, those who were wealthy, it was assumed had an inside track with God. Because this is what they believed, and in, in a sense correctly, to walk in fellowship with God will bring his blessing. <laughs> the Mosaic Covenant is built. If you want the blessings of the Old Covenant, you walk in faithful obedience to me, and I will bless you. Read Deuteronomy 28 with all the blessings. So the assumption of the first century Jew was those who are wealthy are blessed of God. Therefore, they got the inside track. And you just said it's difficult. Wait a minute, Jesus. Time out. That doesn't make sense. It flies in the face of our worldview. And Jesus is saying, that's right, because your worldview is wrong. Children, that's how Jesus addresses these guys. Children. First time it's used in synoptic gospels. Children. My little, faithful, spiritual paideia. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's a Jewish proverb. That was a well-known Jewish proverb. And Jesus quotes it. Now, just a minute, guys. Two things. One, it is difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Two, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And how'd they respond? They were exceedingly astonished. ESV has translated an adverb and a verb. They are exceedingly astonished. We would say, come on, that can't be true. I just paraphrased how an American in the 21st century responds. That can't be true. And he and said, then who? Who can be saved? If what you're saying, Jesus, which flies in the face of our worldview, and astonishment about that, who? Who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say, see, we've left everything and followed you. And you see what's happened. Who can be saved? It's impossible with men, but it's possible with God. Indeed, anything is possible with God. So then Peter says, okay, I sold my fishing business. I left Capernaum where my house is. My wife and my mother-in-law and my kids are still up there.
I'm following you. So, you know, the motivation, the motivation of Peter, the mindset of Peter, we can't understand. But based on all the other evidence that we have of Peter, this is probably Peter saying, Jesus, I'm in, right? <laughs> I, I made it, right? Because I did, I sold it all, and I'm following you, so I'm in, right? <laughs> if you want to know how Jesus responded, come back next week. <laughs> okay? It's a great passage. This is what we've been studying this morning. It really is a powerful passage. I hope it's been helpful. I'm going to pray here, and then I've learned. I, I've lived in almost since 1983. I never know knew I could take 108th Street and go right up to to uh, Blondo. But I learned that last week based on the counsel and advice and Google direction of, of Fred. He told me what to do. And I always do what I'm told. So I found an easy way to go. Father, we're grateful for the Word of God. It does cut deeply. It does expose things that need to be exposed affirms things that need to be affirmed, and challenges us always. Uh, this is a very powerful and poignant passage of Scripture. It is childlike, humble, dependent faith. And every one of us that's put our faith in Christ for our salvation, we, we know what that means. But we also see that, especially in our civilization, that indeed a prosperous, wealthy, affluent civilization, there are a lot of people that reach the community, I, I really don't need God. I, I, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I have the safety and security of my wealth. I, I've accomplished much. I'm self-sufficient. Uh, Lord, that is what you mean for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom is very difficult. Lord, break down those barriers in people's lives. Many wealthy people I've known over the years can be the most generous, incredibly God-centered men and women on this planet. Lord, they are people you're using mightily and powerfully. Wealth is not an evil, but it can keep us from the kingdom. I pray that you'll help each one of us to be the good stewards of what you give us and send the things on to eternity. How we give and what we do with our time and our stewardship of our wealth is, is something that you take note of. It's an important stewardship. It's part of how the gospel message is spread, how things are affirmed, your values, your virtues, and your standards. So, Lord, we want to represent you well. We are dependent beings. We've come in childlike faith to you, and now we live in childlike faith as we walk with you, depending on your sanctifying grace. Be with all the people in this class. Help them in their work, their responsibilities, their relationships, whatever they're doing, even in their retirement years for some. May they represent you well, for we are your salt and light. We want to hear you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So we commit this day, rest of this day to you in Christ's name.